Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 309. This program is dedicated to of a newborn boy born to Eli and Hannah and Druzier and to their dear grandparents, Rachmiel, Rivka Leah Jacobson, and Pinny and Gitti and Druzier. The child was born on Lagbo Emer, special day the day of Rashbi, Abshimen Bayechoi. And yes, what a whirlwind of a week this has been. I am literally amazed and deeply touched by something I want to share, which I'm sure you're all aware of, and that is the amount of goodness and light that has been bursting forth from the Jewish community during this pandemic, during this darker time, is literally astounding. The response, the real Ge'en Yankif response, Mika Amchi Yisrael Go'echad Ba'aretz, look at this nation. Instead of retreating, instead of being frustrated, instead of being angry and upset, and we have plenty of reason with the grief, loss, deaths, and in general, entire disruption, there's been an unprecedented outburst of goodness. This week alone, Lag Ba'emer, as again, you may all be aware of, there was this Hatshalathan reaching literally millions of people, raising millions of dollars, over $15 million for Hatshalah everywhere. And uh, with over 80,000 donors, I had the schus, the merit to be part of it in a small way. But entire Lag Bremer focused completely on Simcha, as Rashbi requested, a joy, should celebrate on his day, celebrating unity in the counterforce to what happened before Lag Be'emer, the 24,000 tragic deaths of the students of Rabbi Akiva due to the lack of respect for one another. Unity, love, a Sefer Teda being written, a second Sefer Teda, and just, a, 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 just an abundance, I would say, a, uh, an abundance of light, of Gedusha, of Kiddush Hashem. And what better way to respond when there is a challenge? This is the story of the Jewish people, the story of our history, that what remains after any dark moment, any setback, any difficult moment, is the great goodness that was born from it, always. We don't just go back to square one. It's always an increase. In the language of Chassidus, that the Cheshach brings out even more powerful light. Just look at the lesson from the Haftera, just as an example. Why do we say Haftera every Shabbos? After Kriyas Haftera, we say Haftera is something from the Nevim, from the prophets, that usually has some connection to the Parsha, or if it's during the weeks of holidays, or during the seven weeks of Shiva Dinechemta, or the weeks between Hashanah Yom Kippur, that period, then it's about Binyan Diyema, meaning connected to the holiday. If it's Rosh Chedesh or Rosh Chedesh has its unique... Habit. Why do we say Avteda? We read the Teda. Why do we need more of Avteda? So it says the Alter Rebbe brings from different sources that during the time of the Romans there was a decree. And what was the decree? That you're not allowed to learn or read Teda. The Jews are always fine with their brilliance a loophole. What does Teda mean? We all know Teda in the broad sense of the word means Teda Kula, Teda Shabik and Teda Shabal Pet. No, the Jews determined to define it for the Romans in the most narrow sense of the word. 
Teira means Teira Shebiksav, and Teira Shebiksav itself, Chumash, Chamisha Chumshet Teira. So they say, okay, we're not reading the Teira, we're reading Nevi'im. It's from the Chavdal Sifri Kedish, but that was not their business. We're reading Nevi'im. And they found a similar theme. So during that period, they couldn't read from the Parsha. Let's say like this week would be Parsha's Bamidbar. So instead, they would read the Haftarah. Why the Romans didn't catch on, and, and whatever the reasons. But that's what they did. So you would think that once the Xedah was over, once the decree was over, we go back to reading the Torah. And we don't need to read the Haftarah. No. We read the Torah and the Haftarah. But the Haftarah was only as a, as, as a supplement to compensate for the lack of Torah. So why do we still have to read the Haftarah? Because when you add in Gedusha, when you add in light, you never stop. Even if something came for a negative reason, you added it, now we could do that as well. It's a tremendous lesson in life. Talk about chassidus applied, psychological lesson, emotional lesson. That's not just enough to endure and to get through a difficulty, but actually you become stronger as a result. And anything you've increased and added has made you more powerful and it becomes a permanent part of your life. The Eden left Mitzrayim, you could say it's over with. It was a nightmare that they were in a hell like that. So why do we have to remember it? So of course, remembering the miracles. Instead, no. It turns into a major holiday. And the same thing with Purim, and the same thing with Hanukkah, and the same thing with Oliam and Tevim. It was hot solo from a negative thing. That's the Jewish way. And it's a lesson, it's a universal lesson, frankly, for everybody. So in this time, when you see such an outpouring of love, of support, of finance, and all that comes with it. If you participate in the Hatzalathan, you can easily see it online. Unitedforprotection.com is the landing page of the three heroes that have initiated all, and I'll mention their names, Beryl Eunuch, Zambi Cohen, and Shlemy Greenwald. I don't know if they'll be happy that I mention it, but I see it's been mentioned so much by so many people. If we can let the secret out of the secret is out. And they're saying it only beside Hakkarah Satev and recognition and gratitude for what they've done. Uniting Jews from all backgrounds and of course through Hatzalah, which has been a, crit a critical role during this time of helping people saving lives, literally. Well, with all this great light and all this great unity and all this great love, may Hashem finally see, this is your nation, this is your nation that makes a Kiddush Hashem, like we read a few weeks ago, Kedeshim Tiyu, Kikodesh Ani, so it says, Yachal Kameni. Yes, Kedusha the Kedusha of the Ebeshter, comes Mekdusha Aschem. Kiddush Hashem. We can increase Kedusha Kav Yachal, so to speak, in Hashem. And look at this Kiddush Hashem. So may we continue to live up to that pride and that making God beloved in the eyes of all, in the ears of all. This is what we're able to do now. And demonstrate as a living role models, Dug how we're supposed to react in times like this. Obviously, follow all the guidelines. There's a teir nishmat you have to be careful with your health. Follow doctors and medical authorities. Rabbanim, who of course follow what they say, the medical authorities. That's the teir, the same Abish that said, pekuach nefesh, even suffolk, even a svek of doubt, you have to be extra careful. So that goes without, I won't say goes without saying, I'm saying it with fetish. But in addition to that, that doesn't mean that in our spirits and hearts 
we have to be careful. They're the opposite. We have to increase. Increase in connection with others. Socially, physically, no. Because of the dangers involved. Or the, the doubt of dangers involved. But spiritually and emotionally, what he says in Tanya Pedic Lev, Pedic Lev of Tanya, Lev also pronounced as love, the first and last, the last and first letter of the Teda, Beis, Bereshis, and Lev, Lamed, the Enikol Yisrael, when you read from the, you finish the Teda, it's Lamed, and then you start Beis, Maskifin, Haschola, Lashlama. We always connect, we never, we finish something right away, start Lev, heart. So he says in Tanya, what is the secret of Yisrael? That you make nafshe iker. That the spirit, the soul, is the primary force. Not the body. If you make the body primary, the bodies are separate. Physical space and time separate everything in the world of matter. Basically, materialism divides, spirituality unites. And nefeshachas, av echad kolono kulam asimus. We're all one. As the Alter Rebbe says, all the different expressions about souls, the mystery of souls, but their intricate connection they have with each other. This is a time when we, especially, more than ever, can achieve that. And that's our counter response. That's our antivirus to the coronavirus. A keser of Gdusha in the most powerful fashion. So when we see things of these type of acts, and it goes down, it's not just the Hatzalathan of Lag Bahimir, but it goes down to every Hatzala member and every individual that goes out of their way to help another. The outpouring of stock of, of, of kindness and giving is something not to be ignored. That when the story will be written and we'll look back at 2020, Tov Shimpei, we'll be able to say, yes, it was a dark moment in many ways. There were people taken from us, loved ones. But it was also at the brightest moment because we turned it into such a tremendous outpour, a, a, a flood, a surge of goodness, kindness, love, mitzvahs, teda, tefillah, tehillim. That's how we have to look at it. And interestingly, when you do it that way, besides for the fact that, as I said before, psychologically, emotionally, it's the right, healthy way to be, it actually makes you a stronger person, more immunity. Because then you're not subject to all the effects that we can succumb to, fears, insecurities, unknowns. They're out there. We all know. Nobody knows what the plan is. God knows the plan. We don't know the plan. How long is this going to be? What, how, how slow is the recovery going to be? I mean, recovery economy and other factors. But we know one thing. We can be stalwart and can be strong with a full fortitude, an unwavering commitment to what we believe in. This is the time. So yes, schools are closed. Schools are closed. So much of the Jewish traditional mechanics, uh, systems, organizations, institutions are on pause now. But we are here. The Neshama is here. It could be Ani Yesheinah. We may be asleep. In this case, the institutions may be asleep for the moment. But the people are awake. The souls are awake. Jews are demonstrating in the most powerful way, both for heaven to see and earth, what we're capable of. And that's the revolution we can create now, a pandemic of goodness and kindness, a pandemic of of non-judgmentalism, of lack of condescension, to go and realize we're all part of one 
cosmic picture. We're all children of God. Sent each one of us by, for a purpose. Everybody here, God sent. And when you disrespect the person, you're disrespecting God's plan, which means you're disrespecting yourself too. Because your only value is because God sent you as well. So God sent seven and a half billion people on this planet. If you say one of them is a problem, you're basically challenging God's plan. So it also challenges your validity. We're all part of it. Especially the Yiddish people, the Jewish, the Am Yisrael, Klal Yisrael. But the truth is, it's the entire world. So maybe continue with this increase, and even when this pandemic will end, very shortly, we should never forget and continue and maintain, like the Haftarah, the positive. Even though it may have come from out of a negative element, but we remain positive. And that's what, that's what defines us. The positivity we create, even when there's some negative experiences. So this is my opening uh, monologue, if you wish. I don't like the word monologue. I don't look, uh, I, I really believe it's a conversation between us all. I'm just the MC, so to speak. But we're all in it together, and there is the energy that you give me, which is the questions you send in, and the comments, and the reactions. And it is, we all do our part. It's a partnership. So and that, that's a good opportunity for me to mention a few items that are regard that, that if you want to submit any question, comment, thought, especially in this time, I appreciate it all, and I will read it, and I will respond if, if need be, at chassidusapplied.com, special site, chassidusapplied.com. It's Kishmoy Kenhu, it's a site that focuses on applying Teira in general, chassidus befrat, to our lives, and especially in this time, we need it more than ever, that type of direction and guidance and strength and hope and courage. You can also find all the previous episodes there, plus the essays that were written in the previous years, and many more materials. I will also announce, which I've already began announcing, I've been giving a class every morning in Hemshech Ayim Beis. I began this class eight years ago, the centennial to Ayim Beis, Tafshin Ayim Beis, from Tafresh Ayim Beis, 1912, 2012. So now eight years. So I've, now, due to the situation, the class is no longer in a physical location for now. It's on Zoom every day. So you can go to our site, Chassidus Applied, um, and if you want information, we'll be happy to send it to you. The exact Zoom address. We'll be sending out an email shortly about it after Shabbos, most likely. Um, and uh, please join it's a live class, but it's also recorded and be able to be available in our archives as a podcast as well. And of what are we addressing now? The nature of existence. What's real and what's not real? What's true reality? What can you truly depend on? That's what we were learning before the pandemic began and we're continuing now. So that too, Chassidah Supplied has a whole I am base section. It has a Samach Vov section. We're also reviewing our Hemshech Tzadik Dalad, which is a Hemshech that was delivered and written by the Friedrich Rebbe in the year 1933, Tishrei time. And that is based on the Ayin Beis of end of volume two, which we're learning now. So please participate and please join us. Yeah. Okay. Um, any other announcements? Yes, I want to announce about the contest. I know many of you spent real time and energy and are anticipating what will be the results. I, as I promised you, Blineder, of course, everything with Blineder, we will finish the evaluation. We will announce winners. 
you'll be hearing from that very shortly. We're now getting back to it, that we're able to create the time. There's a lot going on. I personally have been, as I said, a whirlwind, not just the Hatzalathan, literally doing programming every day. And um, uh, for the same reason, that's how I was trained, as we were trained, that when there's more challenges, you have to bring more light. So we have the, every day the spiritual antidote, a three-minute video that I do, that is also a podcast, that goes through actually bolstering, like the exercise for the neshama, for the soul, that when things in the outside world are somewhat in doubt or in question or upended and disrupted, um, what we do is we're able to go deeper into the soul and strengthen ourselves there. So I've already done, I believe, uh, 40, 44 of these spiritual antidotes. You can find them as well. This, you should go to meaningfullife.com. It's our main site. Um, and there you can subscribe to it. You can get it in WhatsApp. You can get it on different platforms that we have plus many other programs. did a very beautiful program on, uh, on Wednesday night for many different communities based in Florida, but it was really worldwide. People from everywhere hook, uh, came in into the Zoom, and it was about, like Boehmer in quarantine, what Rajbi can teach us in times of upheaval. So just as a little taste, check it out. You go to MeaningfulLife.com or ChassidahSupply.com, and you'll see the calendar of events upcoming as well as past and of different sorts for different audiences and for different ages and so on. This is what, that's the least we have to be doing, at least from our end, of providing as many tools, insights, strength, guidance, courage in, this, in these challenging times. And Hashem, above all, should bless us all. It's already getting rid of all the upheaval, the unknown, <clears throat> and definitely of the health crisis Everyone should be healthy. All those that need a completed Rufur Shlema should have one. Completed Rufur Shlema Bekreva. And the, and the rest should be protected from any of this disease. And the only thing that should remain, as I said, are the antibodies, the positive energy that was created from this uh, challenging situation. Okay. Someone actually wrote to us, Shalom. We have appreciated Rabbi Simon Jacobson's inspiring words and broadcast during this challenging time. Thank you, Ankola Kavod. I was wondering if the essay contest winners would be announced soon. I'm sure the winning entries will provide stimulating reading with everyone stuck at home. Thanks so much. Stay healthy with best wishes. Yeah, good. Exactly right. And that's why we're going to get back to it. Since I'm already reading a few comments, I'll just read a few reactions we're getting. Do you speak with people privately? And the answer is yes, as time allows. Obviously, with a lot of demands on my time, I'm, tr I'm also trying to train others. Um, but if you want to schedule time to speak with me privately, email avital, A-V-I-T-A-L, at MeaningfulLife.com. She'll respond. She manages my calendar and my schedule and speaking and so on. So just email avital at meaningfullife.com and you'll get a prompt response. Um, in addition, as I said, we have full resources at, at your convenience. You can check out video form and text form in all different uh, platforms. Okay. Since we're on, as I said, reading, let me just... Um, someone writes, Dear Rabbi Jacobson, these are a few thank yous. No, I know it sounds strange that I'm reading a thank you to me, 
But I read everything that comes my way, whether it's critique or positive, as you know. So this isn't about um, complimenting myself. I just, I like the idea of having a natural people reacting. Why not give them the platform that they're writing? Unless it's something confidential or something inappropriate. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so very much for the incredible and consistent content you are putting out. It is so amazing and clarifying. It is keeping me positive and growing through this challenging time period with a focus on what is real and important. Thank you so very much. Another writer writes, I just want to say thank you so much. I found out about your class around Hanukkah and have been watching every, mo every Monday morning since. I always feel like you're talking directly to me and I especially appreciate you answering my questions. Thanks for changing my life. I am humbled by these words and uh, because they're not my ideas, they're not my thoughts. Here's God blessed me to be able to convey them, but I'm conveying that which I learned from the Rebbe, from Teda, from Chassidus, from the previous Rabbeim, and that's what we should all be doing. Because what better resource than that? Then you know you're going on an eyes in the brick, you're going on a solid bridge that is unwavering and powerful and is connected in a chain that goes back thousands of years. That is what gives real strength. Okay. So now, being that this is the week of Parsha Bamidbar, and we always try to address to live with the time, which means with what the Parsha that we read in the time. And of course, now that we're dealing with these challenges, the lessons of Bamidbar, and we're moving, getting closer to Shavuos. Bamidbar is always read right before Shavuos, the beginning of the, Sefer, the fourth book of the Chumash, Sefer Revi, Bamidbar. And um, this week, we, yesterday was Chazak. We finished the third book, Bahar Bachukesa and Bamidbar. So let's share a few words about Bamidbar and relation to Chassidus applied to our times. In Chassidus, it talks about the word Bamidbar, the Altareb and the Bamidbar Sinai. So why is the Sefer called Bamidbar? Because it begins with Bamidbar Sinai. But as we know, it's not just because the first words is the word Bamidbar. It's because the theme of the entire book is about Midbar Sinai, the main journey of the Jews over the 40 years from when they left Egypt to they get to the Promised Land, to the West Bank, to the East Bank of the River Jordan, which will be, is the end of Masse, the end of Sefer Bamidbar, is all in Bamidbar. The journey actually began in Sefer Shmois. If you want to know the chronology, we know Pasha Boy, the Jews leave Egypt. Then the journey continues, Pasha Bashalach, we read about Kriyas Yamsuf, which was seven days after after they left Egypt, and then the countdown to Matan Teda, which we're now counting down to, 49, 50 days from when they left Mitzrayim. That's the story in Pasha Yisrei. Mishpatim continues the themes of Yisrei, the laws they received at Sinai, and then in Pasha Truma comes the next stage, the building of the Mishkan, the portable sanctuary that they traveled with through the Midbar, which was erected, which was established as Chedesh Nisan the next year. So they left on the 15th of Nisan. Matan Teda was 50 days later. So approximately 10 months later, uh, something like that, they said that Mishkan, that Pasha Trumo, Tetzava, Kisisa, Vayakob, Kude. At the end of Kude, you'll read that once the Mishkan was established, it says the order of what would happen now. What would happen now is that they would begin to serve in the Mishkan. And when the cloud, would, the cloud of Hashem, Anan Hashem, would rise, that was a sign, it's time to travel. When the cloud rested, it was the time to serve. 
Sefer Vayikra is all happens on Ishkhedish Nisan. Everything in Sefer Yikra is the halachas of the Mishkan and the Beis Amigdash. And, and Tumah Vatara, and the story of the Chanukah Samishkan, that all happened Vahiba Yem Ashmini, Ishkhedish Nisan. Basically, basically Sefer Vayikra. So where does the story resume from Pasha Pekudeh, where the, the Mishkan is erected, Ishkhedish Nisan? And then what happens next is, when is the next time they make the travel? When does the cloud rise? It doesn't rise till the, after the entire Sefer Vayikra. Bamidbar is still, Nase is still in the middle of Baleischa. When does it rise? It says, the Anan Ola, Chaf Ir. In the second month, B'chedesh Hasheni, B'esem L'chedesh, B'chedesh Hasheni, Hasheni, that's when the cloud rises and the journey continues. So in essence, really, the main journey in Midbar Sinai is Sefer Bamidbar, Midbar Aleischa, through Masei. Dvarim would be a repeat of everything that happened the last days. The whole Dvarim happens in Zion Oder. From, I'm sorry, from Rishchei Shvat to Zion Oder. 37 last days of being in the wilderness when the last days of Moshe Rabbeinu's life. This is just context. It's interesting to just keep that context. So Bamidbar, the name of the book is not an incidental thing because the first words of the Chumash, but because that's the main journey in, Bamidbar, in the Midbar was through Sefer Bamidbar. But the question still begs, what is the significance of traveling through the Midbar? We all know the Ebeshter could have taken them much faster to Eretz Yisrael. We know, yes, it was a result of the Mechet Maraglin that extended their journey. They could have gone much faster. But still, everything has a purpose. So we know, why was Matan Teda given in Amidbar? Why not wasn't it given in Yerushalayim or some other beautiful city? So there's different reasons given for it. One of them is because the Ebeshter wanted to show that Teda belongs to everyone. If it was given in a particular city, those city dwellers would say, you want to learn Tehidi, you have to pay us royalties. I mean, I'm being a little, sarcastic, a little, a little uh, light about it, but that's the idea. If you give it in Amidbar, Amidbar is a Mokim Hefker. It's not a place of civilization. No one lives in Amidbar. You lose an object in Amidbar, in a wilderness, and it doesn't have anything that identifies it, it's a Mokim Hefker. It belongs to you. You lose it in a city where people dwell, because in the mid, but most, most practice, since it's not a civilized place, no one lives there. So if someone lost something, they were usually miyayish, they gave up on it. All the different explanations. Bottom line, Midbar is not a place of loy yoshev adam sham, says Yecheskel. It's a verse in the prophets. It's not a place where a human being dwells. That's why it's an arid place. It's not conducive to civilization. There's no water. So you don't live in a Midbar. The fact that we have discovered through technology ways to irrigate even a, uh, a desert and, is, uh, and create a living place in deserts is not natural. It's like a chiddush. Human beings achieve that. But generally, a midbar is not a place of civilization. People who lived in midbar in, in deserts were particular types. And it was not the average person. Usually you wanted to build a city near a river or near water because it was so important for sustenance and also for travel and trade and so on. Okay, so a midbar on one hand is a negative thing, and yet that's dafka where the tater was given, because the Ebrister wants a place that's of a devoid of human structures and human civilization. But there's a positive part of a midbar, as the Alter Rebbe explains. Lo yoshev adam sham can mean it's lower than civilization. Lo yoshev adam, it's lower than it's not a place of meishav ben adam. It's not a place where a person would dwell. It's arid, that it's it's dangerous, and so on. The heat. But there's a Loyosh of Adam Sham, it's higher than Adam, higher than the Adam Elyon. Adam Elyon referring to how the divine manifests in structure of Atsilas. 
Kemar kedmus mara adam. Al Musa kise kedmus mara adam says Yecheskel. What does that mean? Now God is obviously in light sphere related Musa. He's not doesn't have any image, but God manifests Himself in the ten spheres. So there's a structure, a divine structure. Lo yashavadam shah means higher than that structure, like keser, and higher than keser. That does that's beyond structure. So midbar can mean two things. It can mean lower than structure. It can mean higher than structure. Matan Teda was an event, a one-time event in history. It was obviously coming from Shashuim Lefano of God's delights. The Etzim, Teda, Raisa V'Kutshebrecha Kulachad. Teda Nashem. Teda Kodma Le'elam. Kodma Le'elam. It precedes existence, precedes civilization. And that's where the Teda was given. So what it teaches us, that even when we may be in a situation that seems like civilization has come to a, to a pause, like in this pandemic, and the institutions and organizations are right now disrupted, to put it mildly, It'd be much more than that. And there's like upheaval, we should know there's also a deeper positive side, that when we're stripped of the conventional patterns and routines and schedules, you can reach a place in godliness that's beyond structure. So Bamidva teaches us these two sides to it. So yes, you can look at it as a place, okay, it's not a place for me. Or you could say it's beyond structure in order for us to appreciate that the whole of existence, including the divine structures, were put, placed there. And of course, godliness is higher than structure. So you want to be able to manifest higher than structure within structure. So that when we return back, what they call normal, it shouldn't be normal. It should be infused with a newer, higher sense of state of consciousness, recognizing an existence that all of existence and all man-made institutions are all negligible. Infusing it with a divine emes, a divine truth, is the opportunity we have now to turn the midbar of this disruption into a midbar that's beyond structure and informs our structure and elevates it. In previous ep- years, I spoke about it. By Midbar, I'll just give you some cross-references in episode 68, 118, 213, 263. Just to drive the point home, because it may sound a little esoteric or philosophical or abstract, when a person is busy and feels they have all their comfort zones and security blankets and structures, it's hard to get them to be aware and awaken to a deeper truth. Because they have their truth. They have what's called their tzir. Their tzir, they have their structure. So on one hand, it's a comfortable place. And God bless everybody to have that type of calm and comfort. But on the other hand, it's not conducive to growth. Growth happens, real growth, when there's some disruption. When there's a midbar. The Jews had to go through 40 years because they were becoming a new nation. They were forged in literally in the furnaces of Mitzrayim, which was 210 years or 86 years of bitter exile. But there was still one more stage to go through. Now you're out of Mitzrayim. Now you got 40 years, 42 journeys. They received the Torah in the beginning of it, and now they marched through the desert. And this is what hardened them in a good way. Give them the strength to deal with every given challenge. The Baal Shem Tov says the 42 journeys is 42 journeys each person goes through in their lifetime. In one place, he says, each person goes through every day. I actually, a number of years ago, wrote up an application for each of the 42 journeys, what that means in our 
personal growth from childhood through old age. You can find it on uh, meaningful, at MeaningfulLife.com. So the desert was a, on one hand, yes, was a very challenging place. But God protected them there. Gave them water, man from heaven, but it was still a tough place to travel through. And they had their wars that they had to fight. But it prepared them that when they go into Eretz Neshevis, a civilized land, specifically the promised land, it didn't come unprepared. They went through, they paid their dues. So when, the, when you go through sometimes a place where there's a drought, a desert in your life, and a drought can mean physically, it can mean emotionally, psychologically, the goal is to make you a stronger person, to dig and find deeper resources. So then when you, the drought ends, you can come back completely different, a new person. What Chassidus calls yesh, ayin yesh. You started out as a yesh, one state of being, one paradigm. You go through an ayin. You need to go through an ayin. You need a void. The seed, Chassidus says, has to be nirkov, has to deteriorate before it becomes a sapling. All growth is going to go through a disruption of the past, shedding one layer of skin to assume a new one. When you're able to see it through, then you can recognize every disruption in that way. It still doesn't mean it's easy. And there's been losses. I'm not in any way justifying that. But in the big picture, where it's ultimately going to lead is to a greater state of growth. And we're already seeing that in human beings. Okay. So, just going to go in order of questions that keep coming in. I, I'm trying to keep up, but it's hard because far more questions come in that I can cover every week. But we do the best. So please have them coming in and do not feel if you don't get an answer one week, it won't be answered. It may take a few weeks. And just bear with me, please. So here's the, the next question was, where in the Torah does it say how we should deal with a pandemic and severe crisis? Well, this is something I've been speaking about for the last two months, frankly. Uh, if, you, if you go back to episodes, I'm just trying to guess, it would be probably... Uh, 300 because it was around then when this really broke middle of March Purim time you'll find elaboration on my end of all the sources of where pandemics come from it begins with the epidemic that happened the plague in Mitzrayim actually and the Jews were told to quarantine themselves and the Gemara Baba Kama Samach Bey's 60b talks about, based on that verse, what one's supposed to do when there's a plague or an epidemic or a pandemic. And Halachas and Shulchan Aruch and Cheshem Mishpat and Hilchah Shemiras Aguf, etc., talk about this. So you can go there, that's the Torah speaks about how to deal with a pandemic in halachic terms. In spiritual terms, this has been the theme really in the last, uh, I would say, 10 weeks or 9 weeks. So I, 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 I just uh, I encourage you to just go back and find the archives easily found at chassidusupply.com and check it out. It's all by topic. If you go to the YouTube version, you can actually go straight to the theme that you're looking for. You don't have to listen to the entire hour, even though I won't be offended if you do. Um, and, uh, and you'll get answers. I, I, I mean, this is what we're talking about. Everything I, I share here is I, an attempt, at least, of doing it alpiteda. But it begins with halachas, actual halachas that tell us how to behave in times like this. But above all, how Jews have behaved in all challenges, including a challenge like this, 
what to do and how it makes us grow. We talked in the last few weeks how it can make us grow in our Vedas Hashem. It can make us grow in our way of davening, in our way of serving, in a far more real and authentic way because we don't have a crutches to rely on, kiddush clubs or synagogue clubs. And I mean that in the literal sense of the word. You know, people go more of a social scene. I'm not taking away a shul is a shul, a holy place. But sometimes when you're shaken, you begin to, and your, comfort, your, your regular shul that you had to, could go to is no longer there for you right now. It forces you to connect Hashem in, in creative ways, in innovative ways. Find Hashem in your heart and soul. Make your home amigdash ma'at, a small sanctuary through teira vedemils chasodim. So we've been talking this many different angles, and that's my response. So, in the continuation of something that was spoken about last week in, th- in, in episode 308, I want to read the following question. Yeah. How can we have faith and trust in times of crisis of continuation? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I'm, I very much enjoy your weekly talks and I'm particularly moved by the way you put your heart and soul into them. I feel as if you're talking to me alone as I listen. You spoke last week about how it was possible to have faith and trust in Hashem when we experienced the terrible, the terrible, when we experienced the terrible devastation, and often to the people that are on the highest level that this plague has wrought. You spoke about how one just had to accept that the reason that Hashem does things are completely cloaked in a mystery that we cannot possibly understand. And that our response to this lack of understanding has to be to dig deeper into ourselves for the koyach, the strength, to act as an evid Hashem, as a servant of God. I have no idea how to dig deeper when everything I was taught about Judaism asserts that the righteous are rewarded, are rewarded and the sinners are punished. That Hashem listens to the orphan and the widow. That He saved us from Egypt. <clears throat> because he heard our cries and our suffering. The very existence of this plague, if I, am, if I am to believe in the ultimate goodness of Hashem, presents me with a massive cognitive dissonance that I find almost impossible to cope with. I am a physician. It is so much easier to simply believe that we are dealing with a random virus that none of us are immune to and that can cause devastating physical illness. The virus does not distinguish between good and bad people. I can still act in a responsible, caring, and vigorous way in response to it. It's just that when I bring Hashem into this picture, it sometimes infuriates me and saps me of the energy that I need. So my question is, how do I deal with the contradiction between everything I have been taught to believe and the bold statement basically saying, sorry, the reason... I did this terrible plague is something that you're not entitled to know about, quote unquote. <clears throat> if a real parent would claim he loves us and then out of the blue beat us silly with no explanation, then we would be correct in not trusting him. Why is this different? I apologize if this question sounds disrespectful, but I'm having a real issue with my amuna and would really appreciate if you could elaborate on this more. Thank you. Well, I thank you for being so candid. I'm sure you're not the only one with this question, and I include myself. But let me clarify. First of all, God is more than just a parent. 
God is the creator of the universe. So let's make the distinction here. Even though we say Avinu Malkeinu, God is our father, Avarachamim, Avarachamon, God is a compassionate father. So of course God has elements of a father that loves and cares about his children. He created them after all. And more care and, and compassion than any parent would ever have. But God has one more element here. More than one more, but one key. The creator of existence. And the point I made, I recall I made it last week as well, but I'll, I'll reiterate it. When Eov asks Hashem this question, why do the good suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? It seems like random, that just senseless virus killing people, hurting people. And like you said, good or bad, it doesn't distinguish. So what did Hashem say to him? One of the things he said to Eov was, were you there, when you asked me this question, were you there when I created heaven and earth? What does he mean by that, God? You're asking me a question? Not that God was pulling rank and trying to silence him. He says, what do you know? You're a creature. You're one piece of a massive cosmic puzzle. You ask me why there's pain. You ask me why there's joy. You ask me why there's, li- why there's death. You ask me why there's life. You ask me why there's illness. Why is there- you don't ask me why there's health. Why there's hate. Why- why- you ask me why there's love. The point is not to put him in his place. The point is, there's a big picture here. You want to understand the mystery of existence? The way the creator, why did God create a world where it's possible there should be pain and possible there should be illness and disease? So you could answer, as it says in the beginning of Genesis in Bereshis, that had Adam and Chava not sinned, they would have lived forever, which means there would have been no illness and no death. So you could blame it on us. God never intended death. But yet God did give free will with the potential for us to hurt ourselves. So what's the mystery behind that? So we say, God had desire to have a home in this world. In in a world that is devoid in a revealed sense of godliness, where we have free will and we can completely ignore God and focus on our own needs, to the detriment of others, to the point that we can hurt others, even though they're part of us. And we can go to war, and we can, God forbid, humans can perform genocide and terrible injustices to their fellow man, their own brother and sister. Why God allows that? That's part of the Tachtenia mystery. It's part of the Nesav. That's not saying, sorry, you know, out of the blue, like you, like you put it, sorry, the reason I did this is something that you're not entitled to know about. Not entitled? Not capable. We're not God. So as much as we would love the temptation to understand why the Holocaust happened. Why it's individual Holocaust happened. Why now a mother has to be taken from her eight little children. Unbelievable, senseless type of deaths where people are devastated forever. The rest of their lives, they'll be changed. Anyone's going to try to venture to answer that? So it's not, no, sorry, you're not entitled. I would say we wouldn't even understand if God told us the answer and we wouldn't even want it. We want an explanation. Why one and a half million innocent children were gassed and taken to their deaths for no other reason because they were Jewish? God's chosen people. The point is we come to realize that the seichel that we think is so powerful is quite limited. Yes, it's achieved great things. Look at the technologies we've built, the medicine, the way we can build things, the way we can organize, the way we can improvise when there's challenges. 
That's all part of because God created a human being with a divine power that animals don't have. Animals go through their motions, go through their clockwork. Humans can di- can can um, di- what's the word? Can le- wander off the path, but they can also build something greater. Animals will never wander off their way of working. Will never di- digress is the word I wanted to use. We can digress, but we can also build something unprecedented. So is it God's desire for does he want partnership? There's many words for it, and I can, can explain it. But at the end of the day, what governs existence are things that are beyond our understanding. It comes down to this, that in some mysterious, mysterious way, for God to have not allowed the Nazis to do what they did, to stop them, would have been worse than taking away the free will of human beings. That's what you have to say. That the mystery of existence is such that the importance of people being able to do something so inhumane, I don't even have the word for it, the capacity to have that is more important than disrupting stopping it because if you stop it, you're destroying the whole purpose of existence in the first place. Do I understand it? Do I accept it? It doesn't make a difference whether we do or not. That's the way God planned it. So yes, the potential for the beauty and the love of life carries also the potential for the opposite, and we need to choose wisely. There are two paths, God says, and choose the path of life. Is this an answer? No, it's not an answer. So I say to you, what are you left with if you, let's say, let's say you're angry at God, let's say we say that we don't understand God, where you wrote it, what are you left with? Okay, so what are you going to do now? Just say the virus is a random thing, God has nothing to do with it. And what? How do we deal with the pain? We still dealing, have to deal with pain. We see innocent people dying. Is it more comforting to say it just happened randomly? And is it really different? In our mind it's randomly? Or it's a mystery of God's ways. So I'm not sure how it helps. Does it make the pain less? If you say that God was not involved in it? I'm not saying I believe that. but So I'm not sure what the alternative I look at the other way around. The faith and trust in God helps us realize there's a bigger picture. And even though we don't understand it, it gives you strength. I mean, Viktor Frankl, his whole logotherapy is based on that. That there's some deeper purpose. And most importantly, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. If it's random, you could also say maybe it won't go away. How do you know it will? Because we believe in a good God. And even though the goodness may not always be apparent, we believe it's ultimately going to bring to good. It doesn't justify it. We'd rather bring to good without the negative. So I would suggest, I don't know who you are, I don't know what your access to resources, this is, needs a profound understanding of faith and trust. It's not a childish thing, faith and trust. I've talked about this. Not some easy crutch. It's a deeper understanding, I would say, deeper appreciation of existence, of the purpose of existence, our relationship, what we know, what we don't know. And there's much we don't know. There's nothing wrong with not knowing. Why are, we, why are we so disturbed that we don't know? Since when is that a given that we have to understand everything? Any intelligent person looks around the universe. All that has happened. Can you predict how much more knowledge there is? Can you predict how deep down the rabbit hole we can still go? How many more sub, 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 sub atomic particles there are? How deep is the human spirit and its strength? We have no clue. It says about eight ain't, eight ain't soft. 
higher, higher, more and more revealed, more revelations, without end, impossible to fathom, and also impossible to fathom the concealments, and the concealment after concealment, as he explains actually in Ayin Beza and uh, mostly in Tzadik Dalit, the second Maimon Tzadik Dalit. The point I want to make is that this, it's, it, this is a uh, comprehensive, transcendent approach to pain and loss. So though at the moment it's impossible, horrible to see, and we cry, and we should, we should not not cry, we shouldn't just say, oh, the bigger picture. And while we cry, we get strength from knowing there's a God, and there's a bigger picture. And it doesn't justify it, but there's a bigger picture, and good will ultimately prevail. The people that can hold on to that become stronger, not weaker. So I'm not sure how to convey that. Maybe this needs a one-on-one conversation, maybe... On, online like this is just inadequate because this is very personal and heart-wrenching and gut-wrenching. But that's what I wanted to say and i responding to as best as possible to the sentiment you are describing here. So, so hopefully you can dig deeper and find deeper resources in believing in yourself and believing in the human spirit and believing in God, because as people say, people who said, how could you believe in God after the Holocaust? I've heard quite a few Holocaust survivors, you know what their response was? How could I believe in God? What do you mean? That's the only thing I can believe in. You could ask me, how can I believe in man? I never can believe in human beings again. Look what human beings did. I only have God. That's the only recourse I have. It's the only place I get some strength that there's a God. You see, what do you mean? But God let this happen. God is God. God is not on our terms. Obviously, we can argue and we complain and we can be angry even. But at the end of the day, if God is to mean anything, God is the creator. He put, he put this whole thing in place. So, with that, let me go on. Let me move on. The next question is, there's a story in the Gemara about Rabbi Akiva's suffering, and when the Malachim asked Hashem why, he responded, Shtik, kach machshava. So of course, the ten martyrs, this is actually the same time with Rajbi, and Rabbi Akiva was one of them, and they were put to death in the most barbaric fashion. The angel came running to God, Zu teira this is teira, this is its reward, the question we're having now. Hashem said, Shtik, be silent, that's what arose in my thought in my mind. Is this really the Jewish answer to the suffering of good people? Yes, indeed it is. I spoke about this last week. There's no better answer for the unfathomable pain and grief of death and loss than silence. Any words you use are never going to be adequate. Vayidim Aaron, Aaron was silent when his pet children were taken. And here's Shteik. What? What's Shteik? You think it's God pulling rank, as I said before, just wants to silence you, shut up? No. What's kacholah b'machshava? Because I have a machshava that you are not aware of. And there's a deeper plan. And don't go there, because it's not your domain. So shtik is actually the most appropriate thing. When you go, God forbid, go to a shiva call. No one should ever go. And you're sitting with a mother that lost children. Or the other way around. Tragic death. Any death. You're going to start saying, oh, you know what? I have a lot to say to you. You have the gift of gab. You're going to start plaiting, meaning just, 
I don't know how do you translate play the game. Just talk. Maybe it's good to sit in silence. Maybe cry with them. Hold their hand. One Rebbe once said, I don't think it was Chabad, I mean, I once heard that one Rebbe once said to someone who suffered a great tragedy, I don't have answers for you, but I can cry with you. That's an answer. It's not a logical answer, but it's the response to the heart. You think a good mind is going to be able to speak to a bleeding heart? Two different languages. The heart needs a heart. And that's a response. It's a different type of response. Silence is not surrender or a lack of something. Silence is an appreciation, respect for the dignity of a loss. Then I'm not going to go sit and explain to someone, not so bad, it's not so bad. Other people have died, people have grown. Maybe this was a Gilgal, a reincarnation. No, that's not the way. You cry, you cry, that's it. I don't have an understanding. I can't wrap my head around this. And I cry with you, and we're all in it together. So this is an extension of the discussion that this week. And I've talked about it last week. I believe I talked about it many times in this program. And if this does not make sense to you, either because it's not logical, which it's not, but it's real, then I would suggest sit down with someone that's learned Chassidus and understands some of the unfathomable mysteries of God. There's much we understand, but there's even more we don't understand. And not understanding is not weakness. The ultimate of knowledge is to know that you don't know or to know what you don't know. Like recognize, perceive the unknowable as much as you perceive the knowable. And recognize that the real truths of existence are beyond logic, especially the God-created logic. The same logic you're trying to use to understand God, you have to remember, is a God that precedes logic. So yes, God bound himself to logic. He wants to subject himself. And he says, ask questions. And I built a structure, and I'm going to commit to that structure. But at the end of the day, the structure itself, the logic itself, is also divinely ordained. Now, why did God make logic this way and not that way? Why did he even make that we cry when there's pain? Could it make we should be immune? Because it's all part of the mystery of the human condition. Mysteries are not a, should not disturb us. It makes a lot more sense that God's a mystery than God is known. The paradox of the divine. The paradox of existence for that matter. <clears throat> Next question. <clears throat> How prayer helps? Let's see here. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I want to talk to you today about a spiritual remedy for the coronavirus. May no, no Jew know of it. Know from it. I should have may no human being know from it. I was recently listening to a talk show where the talk show host was interviewing all kinds of celebrities, actors, etc. The questions were more about their personal lives, if they were living healthy, emotionally, physical, and spiritual lives. They all answered that they meditate every day. They do exercise and yoga, but none of them answered that they pray to God. However, if they did, it was said half-heartedly. Obviously, in the secular world, among actors, actresses, celebrities, etc. Praying to God is not popular, or at least to say that they pray is not popular, is, is the, the, or at least to say that they do. On the other hand, the Jewish people have been praying for thousands of years. Whenever we have a problem, we turn to Hashem in prayer. Like it says about our patriarch, patriarch Jacob, Hakol Kel Yankov, the voice is the voice of Jacob, Jewish strength is in prayer, the voice. 
Unfortunately, in the last month or so, with all the hip and hysteria, hip, hype and hysteria, about the coronavirus, people are doing all kinds of things to protect themselves. Some are wearing masks, some are washing their hands, nonstop, etc. However, I have not heard a call from our Rabbonim that we should increase in St. Tillin, or that we gather in prayer and ask Hashem to protect our community. Have we become ashamed to daven to Hashem? Have secu- has secular culture seeped into our communities? After all, that's where the buck stops. I don't know why we are trying all the remedies in the world besides davening Tashem. Simon Betev, I hope you'll talk about this. So a few things. First of all, I don't agree with you. I did see her Rabbonim more than once. Maybe there's always more to do. I called for prayer, for a day of prayer, especially lately. Maybe you wrote this a little earlier. Tehillim has been said in uh, immeasurable ways. So to say that it's not happening, it is happening on a grassroots level or from the top down, however. The second thing is, not always we do we know how to pray. A lot of our prayers have been lip service. Now it's coming a lot more from the heart. So I totally agree that we should make a revolution and a true call to prayer in the fullest sense of the word. That absolutely. And yes, it is a secret weapon. And we should not be ashamed and be publicize it in a proper way that prayer can help every human being, first of all, for themselves. Second of all, God hears our prayers. The third point I want to make is that's not a contradiction to doing everything medically prudent, whether it's masks or other things they're suggesting. It's not instead of, what's a contradiction? It's like you go to a doctor, it's not a contradiction to pray. You can daven. Yaakov Avinu prepared, he daven Tashem. He prepared a, a bribe to appease Esau, and he prepared for war. He needed two out of the three. So what's the contradiction? And the same God that said to daven, that we want to reach with davening, also told us, use your seichel, use your midas, use your resources, and find healing, find ways to protect yourself. When there's a, a plague, I mentioned a pandemic, epidemic, it says go into your homes, quarantine yourself. You can't just say, I'm going to go out, out, when you have to go in and say, I'm going to pray. No, that's not enough. It all goes hand in hand. But I thank you for the comments, and thank you. Another person who wrote a little while back, I'm so proud of this country, who is going back ready to March 15th, there was a declaration that the president made a national day of prayer for all Americans affected by the coronavirus pandemic and for our national response efforts. What a blessing to have government leaders who turn to Hashem and say, as we come to our Father in prayer, we remember the words found in Psalm 91. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in Him will I trust. Okay, thank you. Another question, which I guess relates to all of this as well. Why is there collective punishment in Judaism? I'm not sure what you mean exactly. Do you mean that the Nesa Oven Ovis Albonim, that children will be responsible for what their parents did? Or do you mean that uh, a generation, an entire generation, can be impacted by the sins of a few? Because we're all in it together. So let me just address that. The time of the Arizal, is that uh, Rabbi Chaim Vital writes, um, why did Darizal say Al-Chet? Al-Chet, Yom Kippur. If you read those sins, 
Arizal was not Shaykh. Any Tzadigom is not Shaykh to those sins. So the answer given is because since he's part of the generation and he's the leader of a generation, and Shama Klolis, he has within himself, Bedakos, subtly, everything this, the generation has. Additionally, because he's responsible in a sense for the generation, he takes upon himself the responsibility. So it's two things. He's responsible and connected to the generation. So even if though he himself may not have it, that's the, the collective responsibility, especially a leader. And second, that he has it subtly, which of course is dependent on the first point. That's why I said al-chet. As long as we're in Golis, even the greatest tzaddikim are, are bound with us. We even say by the Shekhinah, Golu le'edem Shekhinah that we went to exile, God went with us. So you can imagine the tzaddikim go with us. Because Yaakov Yaakov wanted to live in peace. He already had enough of difficult life. First with Esau from the mother's womb, then loving for 20 years. I want to be at peace. Ba'yeshev Yaakov says Rashi, because Yaakov Leishev he wanted to sit and live in calm and peace and serenity. Hashem says, no, not in this world. My tzaddikim are not going to have peace because the world is not at peace. You can't be a tzaddik in pelts, a tzaddik that's isolated and insulated. You're part of the generation. You're responsible for the generation. Moshe Rabbeinu stayed in the Midbar with his people. Yes, it was the reason was the stone. He, spoke, he hit the stone and started speaking to the stone. But at the end of the day, the captain stays in the ship and Moshe went into Etzisol, the Gula would have come. The Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe says, and the Rebbe as well, remained here in America. Like Yosef remained in Mitzrayim to give us consolation. Be a powerful sikh about that. So in a way, like the din in Ari Miklat, Talmud Gol Shagola, Golin Rabbi Imoy, if a student of a teacher is sent to Ir Miklat, to a, a city of refuge, because he killed somebody by accident. Maglin Rabbi Imei, his rabbi, his teacher goes with him. So we, the great tzaddikim, are affected. There is a collective element. Firstly, responsibility that we all carry for each other. Second of all, because subtly there's everything in each person. So it's not collective judgment, punishment in the sense that you're being punished for someone else. We are all one. Since we're all one, yes, we can affect others. This doesn't mean in a direct way that something happens to someone, you right away say, oh, it's collective punishment. We don't talk in that language. We don't talk about individual punishment or collective punishment. But you're asking the concept, that's the concept of the idea. Why were the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva killed because they did not respect each other? We are told that the 24 students of Rabbi Akiva Yes, we're killed because they're not... Is death really a justified punishment for thousands of people because they didn't respect each other? It sounds extremely harsh. This is, of course, like Bahamas stories when the post-Columbus, that's when it ended, the plague. There are different opinions whether it continued after like Bahamas. But the answer to your question is this. Well, there are many answers given. You're right. It doesn't say anywhere that you put to death because of not giving honor. But as the Rebbe explains in one place, they're not giving honor to each other, made them vulnerable. When there's Ahdus, it's like an immunity to negative things, including the Malach HaMovis, including a plague. The fact that they didn't respect each other made them vulnerable. So when there was a plague, it affected them. That's one of the explanations. So it's not a direct punishment. 
cause and effect. It's, it is the lack of achdus. It's like if your body is not united, the systems in your body are not functioning well with each other. What do you think? It's very prone that illness or infection will set it. If your circulatory system is not flowing or there's an obstacle or something of that nature or an infection. That's the short answer. Okay. There's so much more. I really always feel bad. There's some follow-up I was going to do. You know, just to do one follow-up, let me do one follow-up. It's like Bohemia related. Okay. And that is, what's the connection between Lag Bohemia and lighting bonfires? Is it because when Ashbi came out of the cave, he was on a high spiritual level, and when he gazed at physical objects, they turned into fire? The Gemara says that when he came out of the cave after 12 years, um, he was so lofty, so sublime, that every petty, the pettiness, whatever they looked at, began to burn. So God said, go back into the cave for a 13th bar mitzvah year to gain more spiritual maturity, that wherever you go, instead of burning it, correct it, fix it, repair it, heal it. Okay, no, it doesn't make sense that they were burnt bonfires because of a negative, that he was forced to go back to the Midas. That's why we, we commemorate that by lighting bonfires to, to burn the world. No, that cannot be the reason. The Bnei Yisachar gives several reasons, I believe uh, five reasons. I'll just briefly go through them. One is because the light of an Neshama shines on the Yorzeit, especially Rashbi, who asked that his Yorzeit, his day, should be a Simcha. So the brightness of the light is reflected in the bonfires. A second is because it says in Zoyar, um, in the Idra Zuta, the Idra means the group, small group, which is uh, after three of the, the Idra Rabo is the large group that they were all there, Bipasha Nose, and three of them passed away. So that when the Rajbi passed away, there were seven students with him. And uh, it says that the sun did not set in respect of Rajbi, the sun did not set unlike Ba'emir in the regular time until he passed. So to commemorate that, we light bonfires to show the light is still is burning. Another answer he gives is because he's referred to Butsina de Kadisha. Rajbi is referred to as the holy flame, the holy candle. Another is because Ur, flame, light, is Gematria, I'm sorry, it's good. Tev is Gematria 17. From Lag Behemoth to Shvu, it's 17 days. And finally, one more reason is given because he illuminated the darkness of Golis with Zoyhar, which comes from the word illumination. So all these are hints to why, why we light fires. And I believe the first place it's mentioned is about Tanura that writes in a letter that he came to Miran and he saw that they're lighting fires. Okay. Due to limits of time, I wish I could go on so much more. But we will, we will. Mitzvah Hashem, every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m., we're here. We're here to um, Chassidah Supply. This has been Chassidah Supply episode 309 and everybody be blessed be strong be healthy let us take any challenge and turn it into much greater light much greater love let's truly create a revolution of avas and agdus yisrael as we march towards shvuas and we'll talk about this next week when they came to hasine one person one heart that prepared them prepared them to receive teda and by teda every individual Jew is necessary. Should one have been missing, 
the Torah would never have been given. What better lesson in the indispensability of every individual soul. So may we embrace these themes, use this time to be more beautiful human beings than ever, more beautiful Jews than ever, and Hashem should finally have Rachmanus and end this Magefa, this epidemic, pandemic, and only leave us with the positive growth that came out of it. Everyone will be well and strong. This has been My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 309. This program is brought to you by My Life Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.